0: Mark chapter 12, Jesus begins encountering more opposition from the Jewish leaders. Before he gets too deep into the discussion with them, he first illustrates their conflict through the parable of the vineyard owner. We have the owner of a vineyard, and he leaves it to his tenants who are to take charge of it and pay their rent with the produce. But when the master tries to collect, they only beat or even kill his servants. And so finally he sends his son. Surely they'll recognize his authority over the vineyard. But instead, they kill him just like anybody else. And in turn, the master of the vineyard comes in and says he is going to destroy the tenants. Now this prepares us for the coming conflicts that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders. The problem isn't that they don't recognize the Son of God, but that they want to have all his authority. Verse 13 and on begin a series of tests where all the different various schools of thought come to test Jesus. The Pharisees, then the Sadducees, and finally the scribes. Looking back to Mark eleven twenty seven 27 through 33, we can already see where this is all going to head. Jesus, he's had his authority challenged, and so he asks them, does John the Baptists, does his baptism come from man or from heaven? All the Jewish leaders could say was, we don't know. They didn't want to endorse John, and in turn Jesus, but because they were afraid of the crown, they also didn't want to deny it. And so these men aren't interested in truth, they're interested in keeping their position. The Pharisees, they want to know how Jesus feels about taxes. It was a contentious topic, as the Roman coin that you paid taxes with featured an image of Caesar and had an inscription which called him the Son of God. This was blasphemous at best and idolatry at worst in the eyes of the Jews. So, should they pay it or not? If Jesus says that it should be paid, it's going to discredit him in the eyes of the crowd. If he says, don't pay it, well then the Romans can come in and arrest him. But Jesus outmaneuvers them. He asks for one of the coins and asks whose image it bears. That's who you should give it to. Now notice how they have a coin with Caesar's image, but Jesus doesn't. This to me suggests that they're far more complicit in paying taxes to Caesar than they hope Jesus to be. Now by teaching things with Caesar's image belong to Caesar, Jesus is also affirming that we, who were made in the image of God, belong to him. And that includes Caesar. He belongs to God as well. Ultimate authority lay with God. Caesar is just his tool. And so Jesus gives an answer that glorifies God and teaches submission to the authorities that God has put in place, including Rome. And so if you've rebelled against Rome, you're rebelling against God's order. Next come the Sadducees in verses 18 through 27. They want to test Jesus on a doctrinal point, the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And within those five books, there's not a lot said on what happens after we die. The common belief of other Jews, based on passages such as Ezekiel 37, was that God would raise the dead back to life one day. But good luck finding that in the Torah. So the Sadducees, they want to stretch this idea out to the absurd. So if a woman marries a man, who dies? Then marries another, who dies? And so on and so forth... Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Well, Jesus says they're ignorant on two points, on Scripture and the power of God. As to the power of God, Jesus says that in the resurrection, we're going to be similar to the angels. That is, in our present earthly experience, we can't fathom what we're going to become in the resurrection. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he compares it to a seed being planted. There's going to be a big change between the seed state we're in now and the full growth of the resurrected body after death. Second, Jesus says they're ignorant of Scripture. In verse 26, As for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, not I was. God's promises and faithfulness are kept to his people even beyond death. And Jesus is saying that God wouldn't pledge himself to the dead unless the dead would one day be raised. And then we have the third test, coming from a scribe. These are some of the professional copyists who would write out the law and thus become experts in them. After seeing how well Jesus does this, he asks which command is the most important of all? By Jewish reckoning, there are about 613 of those commands. And he's not asking which can be ignored and which can be absolutely kept. He's asking what is the fundamental principle behind all of these laws. In verse 29, Jesus answered the most important is, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. All commands, Jesus says, center on either our relationship with God or our brother. We can't have one while neglecting the other. And this isn't only just a good answer, but yet another stab at the temple and its leaders. Jesus is saying that the temple is going to become irrelevant for God's most vital commands. After it was reduced to ashes, followers of Jesus could know that they were still following God through these two commands. Now, after these three tests that Jesus passes, he turns the tables on his interrogators and he asks them a question. In verse 35, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he, he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. The Jews, they understood that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David, but they've overlooked something important. David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addresses his own descendant as his Lord. Now, it wasn't fitting for a father to call his own child Lord, which means that the Messiah was something more than just a descendant of David. He's going to be from David's lineage, but he's also going to surpass it. And so this question is meant to get the Jews and us to rethink our ideas about who the Messiah could be. He wasn't just the son of David. He was the son of God.